Good morning. Glad to be with you all. My name is Matthew Shores. I'm from Woodside Community Church. It's a great pleasure to be back uh, to be with you back in November. Pretty excited to be back so quickly. Uh, one thing first, I have to say, um, it was a great privilege to get to sing with you all and to worship the Lord uh, with you. I'm very musically picky and persnickety. Um, you guys were just led very, very well by Frank, Tabitha, and Waverly. Thank you guys for leading us so well. I'm looking for musical excellence in my worship music, but not musical excellence for the sake of musical excellence, but musical excellence that facilitates congregational singing. And that's a rare and hard thing to find, and you guys have it here. And so be encouraged. You're not going to find that in a lot of places. That's a great privilege. So I was very blessed to sing with you all today. Uh, But please take out a copy of God's Word. We just read John 17. Well, let's turn to John 14. This morning we're going to consider verses 18 through 24. Looking back, I realized that I preached from John 13 here four months ago. So I obviously haven't gotten very far in John. I go slow. It's all right. My family recently went on vacation. As you may know or can probably tell, I'm not from here. I'm from North Carolina. So twice a year, we make the long drive south to return and see family. It was a terrible vacation. It was terrible. We have called it the vomit vacation. Uh, Each of our kids got sick. Uh, When you have five kids, that's a lot of sickness and a lot of vomit. Uh, But only one out of five ended up in the hospital, so that's pretty good. Uh, Only one out of five. Fun times. But it gets you wondering in situations like that, why did we go on vacation at all? What are we doing? What's the purpose of vacation? Why do you go on vacation? And looking back and thinking through, and it's better now, we can laugh at it. But ultimately, I think the answer is that we go on vacation for happiness. We believe that vacation will make us happy. Work is good. We know that. But work is also toilsome and tiresome. The occasional rest and disconnect from that work, we believe, will help our happiness. Vacation is about the pursuit of happiness. We were driving back. It's a 12-hour drive. It's a lot of fun with five kids. And on I-81, when you cross over from Maryland to Pennsylvania, there's the big Welcome to Pennsylvania sign. And it says in big, bold letters, it says, Pursue your happiness. Maybe there's some Pennsylvanians in here who who know that. Pursue your happiness. Now, they're clearly playing off the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's no question that what the original authors of that declaration meant by pursuit of happiness is somewhat different than what is meant today by the pursuit of your happiness. That little your is a big difference. But it is a big question that I want you to consider this morning. Where do you believe you will find your happiness? Everything that you do, every thought, every word, every deed is ultimately because of what you believe will bring about your happiness. All people in all places at all times are pursuing happiness in all that they do. The only question is where and how you pursue it. The New York Times is the most read newspaper in the world, and it's not even close, so while I disagree with a lot of it, I I still keep an eye on it. And the subject line of the daily email back on January 1st was a happier New Year. And the whole email was about a new book that just came out called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. For over 80 years, researchers up at Harvard have been studying what is it that truly makes people happy. And they have come to one overwhelming conclusion that the whole book is about. And the answer is relationships. It's strong, intimate, Healthy, uh, intimate relationships are the single most important factor in determining happiness. No argument here. But that's not what I want to talk about this morning. The secular scientific world can recognize that relationships are the key to happiness, but 
they can't really explain why that is. And we can. And it is only because of how we were created and why we were created. It is only because of the first and foundational relationship. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. If earthly happiness is bound up in our relationships with one another, how much more then is eternal happiness bound up in relationship with the Lord of life who has told us that he has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 10. That his very joy, the perfect joy of the perfect God may be in us and that our joy may be full. John 15, 11. So, so what do you want? Why are you here? What are your goals? What are you pursuing, believing that it will bring about your happiness? I have the spiritual gift of making simple things complicated. I want to try to be very, very simple and clear this morning. All I want to do is to encourage you to believe that your happiness is actually and only found in the Lord. And then to encourage you to passionately pursue that happiness by passionately pursuing the Lord. And this text is perfect for that. And why is that? Well, it's because of what Christ promises us here. And in the spirit of Pennsylvania this morning, I want to consider this text in terms of pursuit. You are going to pursue happiness in some way. Do it like this. Point number one, big main idea. Uh, We're going to see uh, and encourage you to pursue your happiness in God's presence. So that's the what. And then points two and three are going to be the how. Point two, pursue God's presence by God's spirit Three, pursue God's presence through God's word. Here's the sermon. If I haven't lost you yet, here's the sermon. So you'll at least get the big idea. You will only find true happiness in God's presence by God's spirit through God's word. You will only find true happiness in God's spirit, in God's presence by God's spirit through God's word. Let me read the text for you. Your job is to make sure that what I'm saying comes from the text. So why don't you keep that happy word, happiness word in mind and be searching and looking. Where, where's that coming from? Why is he talking about happiness? Let's see. I'm going to read for you John 14. We're just going to jump into the middle of the text because time is always my enemy. I'm going to read for you verses 18 through 24. But please pay attention because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you would bow with me, let's, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, we have just sung our prayer, my prayer for this time. We ask that you would show us Christ. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe Christ's words in John 15 that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, I cannot effectively preach your word. Apart From you, we cannot even effectively hear and respond to your word. And so we are completely and entirely dependent upon you and upon your grace and upon your spirit to work on our behalf in this time. Father, there are all kinds of things right now that are clamoring for our attention, that are seeking to distract us, that we're already starting to look forward to and think about and wonder about. Father, help us to set those things aside and focus on your word and on your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to find great joy in Jesus. 
We pray that you would use this time as the means of accomplishing that joy to your glory. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, pursue your happiness in God's presence. Pennsylvania, its nickname is the Keystone State. Kind of an obnoxious, arrogant claim, I think. Uh, You know what a keystone is? The keystone is like the, the central main stone at the top of an arch. And all the other stones depend upon this central key stone. It holds everything else together. We're not actually sure how the name originated. Maybe it's because in the original 13 colonies, there were six colonies above Pennsylvania, six colonies below Pennsylvania. Some think it's because Pennsylvania played the key central role in the founding of our country. Either way, this first point is is the keystone idea of our text. This is the main thing that I want you to get. And uh, I think it's one of the main keystone ideas of your life. Again, you are going to pursue happiness somewhere. You've been doing it this week. You've done it this morning. You're going to do it in the week to come. You're pursuing it somewhere. This is the only where in which true eternal happiness is found in the presence of God himself. And so we see the main idea of the passage and this most precious of promises in verse 18. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There, there's, there's the promised presence. But first, a little context. If you look back at the very first verse of our chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Some of you come into this room this morning with very troubled hearts. Hear Christ's word, let not your hearts be troubled. How? Especially how then, in their context. Jesus is ours away from his betrayal. He's only a few hours more away from his death. He is preparing the disciples whom he loved, 13 verse 1, for that death. He has told them that he's departing them, and they are understandably distraught. They have lived the last three years of their life in relationship with Jesus. And if happiness is found in relationship Well, what hope is there for happiness in the absence of the relationship with this one whom they most loved? Well, that's what Christ is addressing. He is comforting them by teaching them. He is encouraging them by explaining to them why he is departing and what will actually happen when he does. There is trouble looming, and he's preparing them to face that trouble. And as surely you know, life is trouble. My favorite quotes, I use it all the time. I don't even know if I used it here last time. You forget what you use in other places. But The Princess Bride, the movie, and the quote, the main character says, life is pain, princess. Anyone who says otherwise is selling you something. Christ is not selling you something. The scriptures own the trouble of life. The disciples are facing great trouble. Jesus is going to say in 1633, in this world you will have tribulation or trouble. So how can we find happiness in a world where trouble is almost always present? Only in the Lord who is always present. And so Jesus tells them that he will not leave them As orphans, alone, destitute, helpless, he will come to them. Now look at verse 19. Right now we're looking simply at the what of God's presence. We'll consider the how in point two. Verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So there's, there's presence. You will see me. They will see him because he will come to them. Skip the end of verse 19 for now. Look at verse 20. What a promise this is. Pay attention here. Here's happiness. We don't get excited enough about this. Pay attention and don't miss the one, two, three repeated preposition, in. Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Stop. What a word that is. In Scripture, sometimes the smallest words are the biggest words. And that in is a really big, big word. You could call in the preposition of intimacy. It is the preposition of position or 
place. And Paul's letters, for example, he writes uh, to the Ephesians, and they translate it wrong. He says, he writes to you who are in Christ, who are at Ephesus. That's not what the Greek says. He writes to those who are in Christ, in Ephesus. Here is their physical location and place. Here is their spiritual location and place. Jesus says that our position or our place is that we are in him and he is in us. And even better, in some way, the way that we are in the Son and the Son is in us parallels the way in which the very Son is in the Father. And talk about presence and relationship. This is it. This is everything. This is who we are. This is what it means to be a believer. Paul never calls us Christians. He calls us those who are in Christ some 165 times. You probably know this, but we refer to this as our, our union with Christ. And it's a, it's a reality that we must rediscover. John Owen says that union with Christ is the great, most honorable, and most glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. John Calvin says this mystical union must be given the highest degree of importance. John Murray says that nothing is more central or basic to your faith than union with Christ. It's the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. We tend to focus on justification. That's wrong. That's not wrong, but, sorry, that's not wrong, but justification is a fruit of this first union with Christ. And so that's three Johns in three centuries, all in agreement. Salvation itself, the very good news of the gospel, is our graciously given union with Christ. We are in him, and he is in us, and thus he is very much present with us. And this is what this whole thing is about. The Christian faith, not just believing some stuff about Jesus, not just getting our sins forgiven, not just living a moral life, not getting all worked up about all the sin and cultural decay out there, but it is about God himself with us and in us, the life of God himself with us and in us. The New Testament gives this great emphasis. Do we? Next chapter, John 15, Jesus will say, abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a beautiful metaphor illustrating what we're talking about here. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this Mystery. I wonder what we would fill that in. What would we fill in what we think would come there? The, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And on and on we could go. But, but this is who you are, and this is what you are for, and this is how Christ is comforting his troubled disciples, and this is how he is comforting you. I will come to you, and I will be in you. And now look at verse 23 because it just, just keeps getting better. We're coming to all the loving and keeping in the word in point three. For now, I want you to focus on the promise. Look at the end of verse 23. And we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. Home. Listen, home is happiness. So I said at the beginning, vacation with five kids. It's never particularly restful. It's not supposed to be. It's, it's about them and it's, and it's for them. I, I want to get back to work so that I can rest. It would just be much easier to stay home and more restful to stay home. But the work of the trip is, is worth it for them. But Melissa, my wife and I, were talking about home on our long drive back. And again, both how good it would be, will be to get home. Because home is restful. Home is happiness. And now, I know that this is sadly not the case for everyone, but that should actually make this reality all the more needful and precious. Home is meant to be a place of safety and security. There's nothing more important than the making of a home, by the way. Nothing. 
more important uh, than that. But home is supposed to be where you are known and where you know and where you love and are loved, where you can rest and rejoice. It's meant to be the place of the most intimate of relationships. And remember, relationship is happiness. So home is happiness. And so here in our verse, in this amazingly mysterious and wonderful way, Jesus says that God himself will come and make his home with us. I, think I, I don't think I quite understand exactly what that means. I understand that it's, that it's wonderful. And even more wonderful, Jesus has just used this word. This word is only used twice in this gospel. Both of them are in this chapter. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 14. Jesus has just said to them, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. It's not the house. In my Father's house are many rooms. That word in the English, where you see rooms in the Greek, is the same word that we have in our verse 23 as home. So it really is, in my Father's house are many homes. Jesus is preparing a place for us there, home, in heaven. And what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. And we are with him, relationship, happiness. And now what Jesus says here in 23 is that in some way we can start to experience that very heavenly home, him, we with him, and he with us now, here, in this present life. We are home with him, and he is home in us. And it somewhat stretches and boggles the mind. The concept is still somewhat foreign to us, but that's why we must consider these precious promises and pursue the reality of them all the more. For happiness is what we are all after, and Jesus is telling us here that it is found only in him, in the very presence of God, knowing him and being known by him. That's happiness. Now, I asked you to think about this as we were reading the text. Wait, why happiness? Why am I talking about happiness at all? Where is that in our text? It's a good question, and I would argue that it's all over the place, though the word itself is never used. I just gave a hint with just the the, the hint of, of home. Home is happiness. I think it's found there, and I would argue that as well from the prevalence of the word love in our text. Look again at verse 23. Look at the previous phrase in verse 23. My father will love him. Look at verse 21. Loved by my father. There are actually seven loves in our text. Eight if you include verse 15. And it is in love, in being loved, that we find happiness. We all of us want to be known and loved Jesus is telling us here that we can be loved by God himself. And that love is where you will find happiness. And again, this this almost seems too obvious to state, but also we find happiness in life. There can be no happiness in death. Death is the great enemy. It is the end. For sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And the wages of sin is death. There can be no happiness in that which is death. As someone who struggles with succinctness, I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're not familiar with it, uh, look it up, learn it, use it. Question 14 of the Shorter Catechism says, quite simply, what is sin? Well, sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Question 17, what happened to man in the fall? Man fell into a condition of sin and misery. Church, sin is misery. We need to believe that if we are ever going to put sin to death and pursue the holiness that is happiness. All sin is always misery. In your pursuit of happiness, stop pursuing it through that which is only misery. No sin will ever satisfy you. No sin will ever make you happy. We so underestimate the poison of sin and so overestimate its pleasure. 
We must see all sin as only misery. It will never deliver. Back to the shorter catechism. Question 19. Catch this. What is this misery of man's fallen condition? By their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. They are therefore, because of the loss of fellowship, they are therefore subject to all the miseries of life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. You see that? What did we lose? We lost fellowship. We lost relationship. We lost union and communion with God himself. And it is from that that comes all the other miseries and troubles of this life and comes death itself. And so for there to be happiness, something must be done about that sin and death. For there to be any happiness, there must be life. Now go back to verse 19. Look at the end of verse 19. While you're looking down, I want to play this stupid microphone. I hate this thing. Sorry. Look at verse 19. This could be a whole sermon, by the way. Verse 19 is the gospel. Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. That's the gospel. Because I live, you also will live. And your present and future happiness is bound up entirely in that. The whole point is about the happiness that is to be found in God's presence. And I'm still learning this, trying to understand this. Flip to Psalm 16 if you'd like to look at what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk to Psalm 16 for a second. I'm obsessed with Psalm 16 right now because, in part, I don't really yet understand it. I'm desperate to know and experience its truth. And so I've memorized it and I'm coming back to it again and again and I'm praying about it and I'm thinking about it and I'm talking about it and trying to understand this. Happiness. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> Start there. David says in verse 9, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So gladness, rejoicing, that's, that's what I want. Why is his heart glad? Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's death. He's talking about death. And of course, that applies to us, but only because it first ultimately applies to Christ, to his death and resurrection for us. Because I live, you also will live. And he's saying that right after he's told them he's about to die. This is why he's just washed their feet, to show them what he's about to do. Not physically cleanse some filthy feet from dirt, but spiritually cleanse some filthy souls from sin. And he could only do that by taking on that filthy sin himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And this is the gospel. And you will find no true lasting happiness apart from the gospel. If you are here today, and you are not in Christ, if you are just visiting, you've picked a great church uh, to visit, this, this is what you need to hear. This is the main part. You are a sinner, and your sin separates you from the holy God in whom is found happiness. And your only hope of salvation, your only hope of the presence of this holy God is to repent of your sin, to turn away from it, and to believe in Christ, the one who came to offer himself in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. He dies so that we can live, and he rises so that we can live. The whole world is telling you to find happiness within. You will find no happiness within in your sin and yourself. You will find it only in the Christ who dies for that sin to give life to that self. And this is the only way that we can experience the privilege of the presence of God. But again, why would we want to do that? Verse 11 of Psalm 16. This is the part that I'm, I just, I don't get it yet, and I want to get it. I want this more than anything. Verse 11, Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's happiness. True, 
eternal, full happiness. And it is found only in the presence of the God of love and life who offers to make his home in us and with us if we come to him through Christ. I'm a fairly disciplined, driven person. When I start to get into something, I get really into it and I pursue it passionately. I want this to be the thing that I pursue more passionately than anything else. I want this to be the thing that I encourage my daughters towards more than anything else. I want this to be the thing that my church is about pursuing. What if there is actually a God that we can be in his presence and there's actually fullness of joy and pleasure forever to be found in him? Isn't that the goal that's worth pursuing more than any other goal? How aggressively and intensely do you pursue certain things that you think will bring you happiness What about this? Pursue your happiness here in him, in God's presence. So that's the what. But it raises another question. Well, how do we do that? Jesus has just said that he's departing, but that he will come to them. He has said that there is a sense in which he is going to be absent, but another sense in which he is going to be very much present. And so the question is, If true happiness is found only in God's presence, well, how is God's presence found? Point number two, pursue God's presence by God's spirit. Go back to verse 18. Look at 18. Jesus says, I will come to you. Well, okay, what does that mean? How will he come to them and to us? And now, full disclosure, this is actually somewhat debated There are three possibilities here. One is that Jesus is comforting them with the promise of his return at the end of the age, his his second coming. I I don't see how that one is very likely here. Remember, our context is, is comfort. It seems unlikely that Jesus is comforting the disciples at that moment, saying something like, hey, I'm leaving. You're all gonna suffer and die for me, but don don't worry, I'll come back 2,000 years after that death. Um, I'll be back, don't worry. Now, the certain coming of Christ at the end is a great comfort. I just don't think that's how he's comforting them specifically here. The second option is that he's talking about his resurrection and the subsequent appearances to his disciples. And this one very much is possible. Look again at 19. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. It's interesting that if you go back and we read and look, we don't have any record of a single appearance of Jesus to anyone except those who are his. He shows up to his disciples and his followers and he goes and gets and saves Paul later on. No other appearances. Uh, So verse 20 as well, he could be saying something like, well, in meeting the resurrected Lord, finally they'd fully and finally understand who he is. And he says, plus, he says the I live thing. That seems to be talking about the resurrection. So that, that one's very possible, and it could be correct. I'm open to it, and I won't die on this hill. But I actually lean toward option number three. I have worded our point that we pursue God's presence by God's spirit. But why spirit? Where's the spirit? If we just read verses 18 through 24, well, there's actually no mention of the Spirit there. Or is there? My argument, and option three, is actually that verse 18 is about the Spirit. That when Jesus says, I will come to you, I think that he is saying, the Spirit will come to you. I will come to you by and through the Spirit. Now, why do I think that? Well, it's because of the context. The Spirit is actually the whole point of this section. We open, let not your hearts be troubled. How? The Spirit is how. The Spirit is ultimately how Christ is comforting the troubled disciples. He says, I am leaving, but in another sense I am coming. I am going to be absent, but in another sense I am very much going to be present by and through the Spirit. You need comfort? God will give to you another comforter. You need help? God will give to you another helper. Our comfort and happiness is found only in God's presence. God's presence is found only in and through God's spirit. And so while the spirit himself is not named in verses 18 through 24, he does bookend our passages. And often the bookend of passages tells you what the inside is about. So look at verse 26. Jesus says there, 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now jump up and look at verse 17. The Father will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Presence. God's presence. Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit. So verse 19, we see Christ by the Spirit. Verse 20, we know who Christ really is by the Spirit. Notice that in verse 21, he, he doesn't say, hey, you disciples. He says, whoever has my commandments. He's not just talking about the disciples. Verse 23, if anyone loves me. So you see, all the precious promises of this passage are available to all of us by and in and through the Spirit. And so while maybe the resurrection and specific appearances of Christ to the disciples are included here, I think the primary sense of his I will come to you is his coming to us through the promised Holy Spirit who will be with us forever. And that makes who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does of the utmost eternal importance. If it is only in God's presence that there is fullness of joy, and if the only means to that presence is the Holy Spirit, then we should be desperate to know him truly and fully as God himself, the one who teaches Christ to us, the one who glorifies Christ, the one who gives us new life in Christ, the one who makes us more and more like Christ. He is who you need because he is how you get Christ. He is the means of our relationship with Christ. We need to begin to think about the Holy Spirit more intentionally. Maybe that starts today with first thinking about how little you think about the Holy Spirit. Maybe for some, that starts with thinking about how wrongly you think about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of silliness that gets attributed to the Spirit these days. We are often quite Spirit-confused. But Christ is quite clear in the verses to come about the Spirit's primary role. The Spirit glorifies Christ. The Spirit applies the work of Christ. The Spirit teaches the words of Christ. He saves the people of Christ. If you find a place in which you see Christ being exalted and glorified and Christ's people becoming more and more like Christ and loving one another, there's the Spirit. But we've got to start with the understanding that we have no access to the presence of God apart from the Holy Spirit. Thus, for us to pursue that presence that is life and joy, we must pursue it by the Spirit. Still, that sounds very vague and mysterious and nebulous. What, what does that even mean? How do we pursue God's presence by God's Spirit? Oh, I hope you're not disappointed here. Point number three, pursue God's presence through God's word. I want you to see how our Lord emphatically emphasizes and repetitively reiterates the importance of the word. And look at how he does it. This may be one of the big things that we're missing. Let's start with verse 15. Jesus is basically going to say the same thing four times in a short span. Look at verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 17, we have the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Now look at verse 21. Here's number two. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's the same thing. Keep reading. Here's the promise. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Pause. One thing there for a second. Here again is the love that you need. There in verse 21, we all want to be loved. What a promise that we can be loved by the creator God of the universe himself. I don't know most of you. I don't care if you love me. I don't really care. I don't know you. I care if my church loves me more than you because I know them, I'm close with them. I care if my father, Pastor Mike, Ed Moore, Harry, Caleb, men that I'm close with, I care that they love me because I know them and respect them. I care that my kids love me. I care most of all that my, light, my wife loves me, right? Here's this, this intimacy. Here's this infinitely superior person to me who loves me. That gives me great joy. God himself, the creator God himself, 
says that he loves us. That should fuel and fire everything about who we are and what we do. But notice in verse 21 what that love includes. Jesus says he too will love us like father, like son, and he will manifest himself to us. That's pretty neat. He he will show himself, reveal himself. God loves us. What does God give to us as an expression of his love to us? Fuller revelation of himself to us. We just read it in Psalm 16. He's the one whom knowing is eternal life. He's the beautiful one of pleasure and joy. And he says, I will reveal more of myself to you. More of my infinitely glorious and good and beautiful self. I'll give you more and more and more. So the love of God for us includes the further revelation of, of God to us. Now look at verse 22. Judas, the other one. Poor that Judas. I ought to change my name quick. Call me something else. But this is the only time we hear anything from this Judas. Number two, uh, verse 22. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Some people think he's not not as much saying how as as the how. He's more, more questioning the why. He's probably saying something like Jesus' brothers have said to Jesus back in 7-4. Why do you keep showing yourself to this little group of people? They say, show yourself to the world. Why just manifest yourself to us? Why not manifest yourself to the whole world? I think that's what he's asking there. And though Jesus doesn't seem to answer his question, I think he does indirectly. Now look at verse 23. Here's the third repetition of this same idea. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Fourth time is in 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And what's the big deal with these commandments and words? End of our text. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You see, the words of Christ are the very words of God. When I read for you John 14, you weren't hearing me. You were hearing the very words of God. When the John 17 was just wonderfully read for us here, that was the voice of God speaking to us through his word. And so here's the basic idea, what we're seeing in these uh, four repetitions. And this is such an important one in our love-confused culture. Christ is saying that obedience is the evidence of love. Obedience is the evidence of love. And not that obedience is love, but that love results in obedience. It reveals itself in obedience. Now, to be clear, as we always need to on this point, Jesus is not saying obey me and I will love you and save you. But he is saying, I will love you and save you and the result will be your love for me expressed increasingly in your obedience to me. And why why is that? What does obedience, keeping his word, have to do with love? We, We so divorce love and law these days that we struggle to comprehend this. But it's not complicated. It's quite logical and reasonable. Consider who God is. He is the creator, king of everything. He is the Lord over all. The one who is all powerful and all sovereign, but also the one who is all wise and all good and all love. And thus anything that this God says and reveals will be an expression of all of that All that he is in his sovereignty and power, his wisdom and his goodness and love. When I am being a good father, which I hope is some of the time, I have five daughters, it's the great privilege of my life, but when I'm being a good father and I set rules for my children and then I discipline them when they willfully break those rules, it's because I love them. No four-year-old Tessa, you cannot go running blindly across Queens Boulevard by yourself. No one-year-old, Vera, you cannot go sticking your fingers in light sockets and chewing on power cords. Am I doing that because I'm mean? It's because I have the power and the authority, and I delight in wielding it for my own glory over these tiny little people. No, hopefully it's because I love them, and I exist to seek their good. Running across the boulevard of death is, well, death. Chewing on electrical cords is bad. And so because I love them and I want their good, I speak words to them as their father. 
I give commands to them as their father because I know a little bit more about how life works in this world than they do. How much more then? God our Father who created this world. He has graciously given to us his law and it is good. And it is for our good always. And so just like a child who strikes his parent or screams at his parent or looks his parent in the eyes when told to do something and says no or ignores the parent and disobeys the parent, that's not an expression of love. That's an expression of hatred. Parents, please, your children desperately need you to teach and train them that there is an authority in this world and that they are not it. Love them and discipline them. Teach them to honor God and keep his word by teaching them to honor you and keep your word. But though there is nothing that grates on my nerves more than a willfully and fragrantly disobedient child that is not corrected, it is infinitely worse when we willfully and flagrantly disobey God and reject his good and perfect word. It is an expression of disregard. It is an expression of hatred. This is why sin is so serious. This is what your sin is. No, you must be wrong. I must be right. No, you must not be good. I am good. So we're saying every single time in our sin. And this is why obedience is an expression of love. Oh, hey, that, 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 flip, that switch flips and you start to see. I, I see that you're God. I see that you're good. I see that you know better than I do and that you have promised that you are working for my good. I am going to seek to listen to you and trust you and obey you. That's an expression of great love. It is seeing his infinite worth and beauty and goodness and responding to his word accordingly. Keeping God's word is evidence of loving God's son. You will find no happiness in disobedience. Now, none of, us, of course, none of us do this perfectly. But are you just hearing the word? Or are you heeding it? In Christ, this will increasingly be the pattern and progression of our lives. And that's just part of the reason why we can only pursue God's presence through God's word. It is no mere word. It is a living and active word. <clears throat> it is a word breathed out by God, inspired by the Spirit of God, and then illuminated and applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. This word is the means through which God saves us. We're born again by the word. This is how he sanctifies us and preserves us. This is how he is present with us. This is the how of practicing and pursuing the presence of God. It is only through this word, his word, the Spirit's word. This is how the Spirit works through the word. But the important point we're seeing here is that there's much more to responding to this word than just hearing it on occasion <clears throat> or reading it on occasion. So often a pastor's application is little more than, all right, read the Bible some more. And again, that's, that's probably, I probably do that as well. Um, again, that's not a bad thing. But much of our spiritual life, we strangely call it quiet time. That's weird. I don't know why we call it that. It's not very helpful. Or, or devotions. I, I don't know what you want to call it. But for many of us, it consists little more than begrudgingly reading for a minute or two, throwing up a quick prayer because we know that we should. And then getting on to our real lives, the things that we really want to do, the things that we think will make us happy. And the change probably needs to start with our why. Yes, read your Bible more, but why? What are you after in reading your Bible? Maybe stop thinking of it just as reading your Bible. Maybe point number one, start thinking of it in terms of pursuing the very presence of the God who has perfect pleasure and joy. Listen, we know we're pretty good at knowing what we're saved from. We're seeking to better understand what we're saved for. And we are saved for God himself, saved for communion with him, to be with him and enjoy him. And in so doing, become more like him. God has promised us that he is forming us into the image of his son. Can you imagine? I can't even preach a sermon without sinning, without conflicted 
thoughts, without questionable motives. I can't do anything without this, this internal wrestling and battle with that, that sin that remains in me. God says, hey, that perfect person who never sinned, was never tempted, never even anything, I'm going to make you like that. I'm making you like him. The one who is full joy and pleasure forevermore. That's happiness. I can't wait for that. Holiness is <clears throat> happiness. Maybe that should be your goal. What are you pursuing? Make it happiness in God himself. And then pursue that as if you actually believed that there was infinite and eternal joy offered to you here. And so your application is simple. It's pursue the presence of God. How? By the Spirit through the Word. Try to start first by thinking specifically of your time in the Scriptures and your time in prayer as your pursuit of God himself. And as you enter into that time, do it more intentionally and more prayerfully. Do it maybe by con considering more intentionally the Spirit. Sometimes I have to go into it saying, Father, I don't really want to do this, and I want to want to do this. I need you to help me to want to do this. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's one of the best prayers that you can pray. Help me by your Holy Spirit. And then read the Scripture for what it is. God himself present with you and speaking to you because he loves you. So first, intentionally pursue God in set times of scripture, meditation, and prayer. Second, your second application is intentionally pursue God and realize his presence then in your day-to-day -day life. Consider adopting the practice of regularly considering your present circumstances in light of the present Christ. Begin by asking yourself, how would I respond to this circumstance if I really believed that I was in Christ? and that Christ was in me. You know what you all just sang? You all just sang, whate'er my God ordains is right. You're all liars. <laughs> I'm a liar. How quick are we when we, something that is ordained that we don't love and we grumble and we complain and we, we're miserable? Start by considering that God is sovereign and good and providentially directing and ordering every single thing, including the bad things, for your ultimate good. So how would I respond to this if I believed that Christ was in me? This difficult person, this traffic, this health problem, this small, daily, irritating frustration. What does Christ in me say to such a situation? And how would I respond to it if Christ lives in and through me? And just quite simply, your third application, and I'll be done. It's, it's good help. Good help. You have a wonderful church here. You have a wonderful pastor that I love very much. Use your church. Use your pastor. Talk to each other. Talk to him. You are not, and you cannot do this by yourself. This pursuit of God in the presence is a corporate affair. Pursue him. And pursue your happiness in him by the Spirit through the word together. And First Baptist will be a living church that brings God much glory and brings you all much good as you find great happiness in him. Let me close you now with a word of prayer. Father, my words have been many, but it is your word that is our hope. Father, we have just heard that it is this word that the Spirit uses. This is the means through which the Spirit saves and sanctifies and comforts and encourages. Father, save, sanctify, comfort, and encourage. Whatever each of these individual souls needs this morning, Father, it's found only in you. And so we ask that you would do the part that I cannot do and that you would do the part that none of us can do that you would now, by your Spirit, work through that word. Show us Christ. Father, help us to love Christ. Father, I want to love Jesus Christ more than I do. I want to pursue him more than I pursue anything else. And I want that for First Baptist Church as well. May this be a place that cherishes and treasures and loves Jesus and finds great joy in him and finds great joy together in him. Use this church for your glory, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.